Hey everybody, welcome to the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Happy birthday to you. That, of course, was the lovely Marilyn Monroe singing to Donald Trump, who turned 77 this week. What a young, sprite guy. Not like that old 80-year-old Joe Biden. I'm really excited about today's show. We have Jake Tapper on. We'll get to him in a little bit. But first, I want to thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read a few next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe to be notified every time we post a new episode. Here's some recent feedback. Randy Shine on our Peter Riegert chat says, Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Having lived in a fraternity when this came out, I saw this movie, Animal House, a bazillion times. Debbie Best writes, I was in college and acting like it was in Animal House. No wonder I didn't finish. <laughs> you and me both, Debbie. All right. Before we start, I want to say that uh, this is our one-year anniversary here in the back room. It's been one year, and this is our 85th episode. Hard to believe. When we first sat down, we had Paul Rudd in the studio for episode one. I feel like we've come a long way. I work with two of the most fabulous people, Maddie Rosenberg and Jen Hamoud, who make this all happen. And it's been great. I feel like I'm a kid in a candy store. And I'm not just saying that because I own Samuel's Sweet Shop, <laughs> which is actually a candy store. And so I want to thank Maddie and thank you, Jen, for helping launch the back room and keeping it all together. As they say, I couldn't do it without you. We're having a great time. And that's really the most important part. It's all been fun. Yeah. And thank you for letting us be a part of it. We've really, really enjoyed it. Lots of laughs. Lots of laughs, lots of good times, lots of tears. No, we've never had any. There's been no tears, not even one, not even one tear. And so, yeah, I'm really excited to see what the next year brings. All right, so let's get to our one big thing this week. This was not just extreme carelessness with classified material, which is still totally disqualifying. This is calculated, deliberate, premeditated misconduct, followed by a cover-up that included false statements and lies to Congress, the media, and the American people. In my administration, I'm going to enforce all laws concerning the protection of classified information. We also need the best protection of classified information. That is the worst situation. Hillary's private email scandal which put our classified information in the reach of our enemies, disqualifies her from the presidency. You got to assume somewhere right now, Sigmund Freud is in the ether <laughs> going, you know, that's, that's a pretty good projection. It is astounding that those words would come out of his mouth in the past, and then he'd end up where he is. He has a knack for doing that. I guess the other one was like, only the mob takes the fifth. <laughs> yes. yes. Like how he's able to say that and then be in the same situation and like no one seems to give a shit. It's astounding to me. It's a cult. It's just a cult. It is a cult. Hey, so he was arrested again this week, looking very tired and sullen and 
defeated. And like moseyed into a Cuban restaurant after and then went back to Bedminster and got some love. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, does it seem like, is, is this some kind of inflection point, you think? I don't no. think so. But the, to the Cuban restaurant, I don't know if you heard that he, he called out food for everybody. <laughs> I and, <saw> a, <laughs> and apparently, I don't know, it's a Miami Tribune or some newspaper went back and asked and he just left after 10 minutes. Nobody got food. Nobody. Nobody got food. Nobody got free food. Nobody. If you ostensibly had a billionaire, let's say Michael Bloomberg came into a cafe you were in and he said food for everybody, I guarantee you everyone in that place is going to get free food. I still can't get around how surreal it is that despite it all, we're still dealing with Donald Trump. It's exciting, his base. It's the opposite. I mean, but you're right. His base is stupid. There was a clip this week. It was like a Jordan Klepper, good liars type interview. And asking about the Mar-a-Lago documents. And the guy was like, he didn't, he didn't take, what do you think? He's stupid. He's not leaving him around some bathroom or anything like that. Like, no, that's exactly what he did. He left them in the bathroom. Those were his shoes and clothing. You're mixing things up. <laughs> and what's astounding to me is that the Republican leadership, they're still defending him. There's not even the allegation. That it was accessed by any foreign power or given to any foreign power. And you have to weigh that harm with the real harm that this indictment's going to do. Harm to our institutions, to our courts. This is a polarized country they're pouring gasoline on top of. It seems there's two systems of justice here. One for President Trump and one for everybody else. I've read everything I can find about it. I'm not a legal analyst, so I'm not going to comment. They're always wondering about this double standard of, of prosecution, about this unfair, unequal treatment of the law by certain prosecutors. We have no idea who looked at them because they were sitting around in a public space for months. And that's supposed to be, and then you had Kevin McCarthy, which wasn't in that clip who defended it by actually saying, well, at least a bathroom door locks, which, of course, he forgot to remind people that it locked from the inside. <laughs> yeah, they're twisting themselves into pretzels to defend him. I mean, I, I forget who it was on this clip we just played, but it's like, no, there, there are not two systems of justice. There are just two types of people, those who commit crimes and those who don't, right? And those who commit crimes, no one is above the law and they pay the price. And in a way, there are two systems of justice because Trump was given so much leeway on this. He returned 197 classified documents. Anyone else who kept 197 highly classified documents for months and months after being begged for would have been prosecuted. He just returned them. They made no charges for those. Yeah. I mean, there were he... lots and lots of um, reports recently that some of his previous lawyers had encouraged him to negotiate that he none of this would have ever happened right. if he just returned everything. But he's... So much smarter. And they're his documents. He's a child. He's petulant. He's defiant. That's how he's been his whole life. So it's like dealing with a teenager. You tell a teenager up, they say down. You know, you say black, they say white. And that's how Trump is. To your point, Jen, this is the biggest unforced error in the history of American politics for the reason you said. All you have to do is give them up, back. Up until the moment the FBI had to take them from him. Yeah. Like, even after they subpoenaed them, if he had just given them back, no one would have prosecuted this in a million years. Yes. No, and he, he constantly cites the Presidential Records Act as his justification. <laughs> Under the Presidential Records Act, which is civil, not criminal, I had every right to have these documents. Uh, you know what, Maddie? Let's just play that one more time. Under the Presidential Records Act, which is civil, not criminal, 
I had every right to have these documents. First of all, it is criminal because you just were hit with 37 felony counts, okay? But more importantly, the Presidential Records Act says the exact opposite of what he says. Here, I'm going to read. This, this is a quote from the Presidential Records Act. Upon the conclusion of a president's term of office, or if a president serves consecutive terms upon the conclusion of the last term, the archivist of the United States shall assume responsibility for the custody, control, and preservation of and access to the presidential records of that president. Nowhere in the Presidential Records Act does it say, but the president gets to decide what he takes, when he takes it, anytime he wants for whatever reason. I mean, they don't care what he says. It's He's right. I was thinking yesterday, Fred Trump, you know, Fred Trump, Donald's dad, literally when Don was growing up, thought he was a fucking loser. And Donald Trump has lived his whole life not wanting to be a loser. Like, that's his thing. He can't be seen as a loser. And always trying to, like, show up his dad, outdo his dad. I think there's an interesting father-son thing that's happening right now. And that is that you take the fact that Trump was given $400 million by his dad. That was an inheritance. And if you just sort of separate that out from every other thing financially that Donald Trump has done on his own, he is a fucking loser. And he blew through that $400 million. Bankrupted himself half a dozen or more times. Became president only because he's a thief and a grifter and a liar. But when he became president, look what he did. Look what he did. Ended up getting likely indicted four times. It'll probably be like 150 felony counts by the time it's done. It's going to end up in prison. And you know what I call that? I call that Fred was right. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. We've come full circle. Fred was right. It's an interesting theory. Yeah. yeah. Right? And so now we have to worry about Judge Aileen Cannon. Democrats are afraid she's going to slow the process. She's going to be in the tank for Trump. I don't know. Yesterday she came out and she sort of issued a scheduling order. And she said that the lawyers have to apply for their security clearance. ASAP, she wants a report in five days. I kind of have this other theory, too, that she is looking to rehabilitate her very tarnished reputation. This is an opportunity for her not to be in the tank for the government, but to just literally play it by the letter of the law. No fucking around. I think that she is a Republican. And if you're on the court, the district level in federal court, you want to be promoted to the appellate court and She's never going to be promoted by a Democrat. She's only going to be promoted by a Republican administration. And so while I don't think necessarily that she's going to want to be schooled again by the 11th Circuit, I don't think she's going to be very favorable to anything that could ruin her career in the future. Look, she's got a lifetime appointment, and she literally is a joke right now. She's basically viewed as incompetent and kind of guilty of judicial malpractice. I mean, the 11th Circuit just literally scolded her like she was an inexperienced rookie. So if you look at it from her perspective, people have a short memory. It's what you do for me lately. If she can oversee this case and do a great job and not appear biased in any way, that's what history will remember. I mean, it's certainly a possibility. 
that she'll go down that path. I mean, part of the problem is that she has no, almost no experience. She's only had four criminal trials. Yeah. That's like nothing. And yeah. this is an incredibly complex, no more high profile case in the history of the country. That's right. And every eyeball in the world is on her. Yeah. And if you're smart, you say to yourself, okay, I can either fuck that up or I can use this to my advantage. If she bends over backwards in any way to help Jack Smith or perceived to help Jack Smith, she will never get a promotion in her life. It's not about bending over backwards. It's just not doing what she did last time. If she just calls it by the book and seems objective, that's all she needs to do. And that's not difficult. That is I, not difficult to do. I think she'll do better than last time. I really do. I hope so. All right. Let's get to our winners and losers. My winner a bipartisan Senate bill that would seize pay of failed banks' executives holding them accountable for the March collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. My loser, J.D. Vance, stating he will block most nominees to the Justice Department in response to what he called the unprecedented political persecution of Trump. I think that we have to grind this department to a halt until Merrick Garland promises to do his job and stop going after his political opponents. Since it's Pride Month, my winner is Cracker Barrel. The restaurant known for its down-home decor, Southern Country-themed menu, published a Facebook post promoting Pride Month with a colorful rocking chair. They took a lot of heat from the GOP. My loser, opposite to that, is Starbucks, whose workers' union has now said that they had to remove Pride decorations at many Starbucks, even in Greenwich Village, which is the home of Stonewall. It is crazy that Starbucks is doing this. My winner. Department of Justice Special Counsel Jack Smith, the king of fuck around and find out. My loser, Donald Trump. All right, that gets us to our weekly rant. So, Donald Trump arrested and arraigned again this week, pleading not guilty to those 37 felony counts over his theft of top-secret classified documents, which he had lying around unsecured all over that shithole Mar-a-Lago resort of his. Two indictments two arrests, two impeachments, found liable of sexual abuse in a civil case. More indictments likely to come in Georgia and by DOJ over election theft and the January 6th insurrection. He's someone who's violated the Espionage Act and endangered our national security and the lives of our military and intelligence personnel. And yet, despite having tapes in Trump's own voice admitting to taking the document and conspiring to obstruct the investigation, he remains the clear 2024 Republican frontrunner. Why? Because his party is dead. The GOP leadership is once again rallied behind their wannabe dictator, blaming Trump's massive legal problems on everything from Hillary Clinton, Democrats in the deep state, rhino Republicans, the weaponized Department of Justice and FBI, the media, President Joe Biden, and his son Hunter's infamous laptop. Yep, it's all just one big fat-ass conspiracy against poor little Dottie. Everyone's out to get him. He's treated so unfairly. Let's be one million percent clear. It's no one's fault but Trump's. The megalomaniac man-baby who once arrogantly bragged, I alone can do it all, is now having those words shoved up his corrupt ass with vicious legal ferocity. All he had to do was admit a mistake and give the documents back. 
Instead of saying, no, they're mine. The boxes are mine. I will hide them and keep them and y'all can fuck off. Yep. Trump's fault. No one else's. Period. End of story. Let's get to Jake Tapper. Jake is the lead D.C. anchor and chief Washington correspondent for CNN. He is also an accomplished author who's written two New York Times bestselling novels, The Hellfire Club and The Devil May Dance, as well as the bestselling nonfiction book, The Outpost, An Untold Story of American Valor, which was turned into a critically acclaimed film in 2020. His latest novel, the thriller, All the Demons Are Here, will be released July 11th and is available for pre-order. Jake, welcome into the back room. It's so great to be here. You've, you've, uh, you've been very patient. Uh, CNN doesn't let me off the leash very often, so, so thank you so much. I've wanted to do this show for a long, long time, and I'm glad, uh, I'm glad it finally worked out. No, I'm thrilled that you're here, and I'm sure the audience is going to love it as well. But before we talk about politics or writing, we, we're going to talk about what's really most important in this country right now, which is Taylor Swift. <laughs> she's uh, she's very important in this in this house and that that I'm in right now. My daughter is obsessed. I have a 15 year old daughter, and she is obsessed. And I got her and my wife Taylor Swift tickets, and uh, that was a big achievement. And then. Oh, but but the biggest achievement um, of my in my daughter's eyes was she did a TikTok video. She had made a cake, and every slice represented a different one of Taylor's albums. And she made a TikTok video about that, and I uploaded onto Twitter and tagged Taylor Swift. And Taylor Swift liked it. Oh my god! She liked it. So she now, are you like it. an icon in your house right now? Did you get any lasted, dad points for that? It lasted about a weekend, but. Uh, <laughs> I did try to milk it. I uh, I took a picture of Taylor Swift's likes, her liking that, and I made her, I made my daughter uh, a, a hoodie. I made her like a big prince she could hang. I wanted the reminder of this one achievement I had made for her. So that was big. I, I can't imagine, and I have a 19-year-old, and she went to see Taylor Swift, and, and she never throws me props uh, about anything, but I think if I had had some kind of interaction with Taylor Swift, that might give me one yeah. maybe two days of some solid props so yeah i mean that's impressive the night is still young you don't know yeah I mean, we don't know what's gonna happen i mean but uh, i'll brainstorm for you next time if i ever get close to her in any way <laughs> i will try to remember to add you as another dad that could use the support we got to stick together jake people like us i said i went out to um la uh, earlier in the year and I had dinner with some friends, and one of them was uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, who you may know, and mm -hmm. he was a lovely guy. And uh, I sent that photo back to my family, and I got back about thirty thumbs down emojis from my daughter <laughs> because of this. Because of oh, part of, of this course, right? Swift cult. I'm like Alice. He didn't do it. He he broke up with the, people. Break up. It's not like it's not that big a deal. Ten minute it's song. Not, I know, but it's just ten like, minutes of breakup music. I understand, and she has every right to create art from it. But like, I think she was like twenty. It's okay. They broke up. It happens. People break up with people. I it's think not... if it wasn't for breakups, I don't know, she might not have any songs. Well, she has a lot of beautiful songs. So whatever, whatever is fueling it, good for her. Good for, good her. for her. So before we get into, I want to talk about your, you have a new book that's launching uh, July 11th and it's available for pre-sale right now. I want to talk about that in a bit, as well as uh, your journalistic career, both of which are stellar. But I first want to address what I like to refer to as the 325 pound gorilla in the room. It's been a big week for Donald Trump. 
I want to ask you. That's not his official weight count, by the way. I believe his higher? official weight. It's higher? Well, I think, I think the official was like 226 from Dr. The guy who's now a congressman, I forget. Right, and he's done nothing wrong either. Um, <laughs> and if you believe that, I have a, uh, a resort. I was a little skeptical of that weight, Karen, I, I will admit. Yeah. Because I've been near him, and he's not only um, heavy in the belly, uh, but he's, he's, a, he's a big guy. He's a broad guy. Yeah. Um, so I was skeptical of, of that. I once came out of a Nick game at Madison Square Garden years ago, and he came out the same entrance with his, dr- with his whoever, and his limo wasn't there. And it was uh, really an interesting thing because I, I will never forget what he was like in that moment just because- When was I, this? When? Oh. Like the 80s? Uh, no, maybe like early 2000s. Okay. And he was so angry. And then, of course, we experienced the Trump years. And it's like, oh, wow, that was pretty telling. I know you're not a fan. Of the Knicks? Of Mr. Trump. Of Mr. Trump. I know, I fed you that line. I don't think you could call me a fan and have any degree of accuracy. Uh, yeah, you're, you're, in addition to your politics being progressive, uh, you're not, also- Not necessarily. I'm not, I wouldn't call myself- Progressive-ish? Progressive. Uh, center left? How would, how would you describe it? I'm a Democrat with, you know, I was a business owner, so I have some, you know, capitalistic views, okay. uh, but I also am very liberal socially very liberal socially. Uh, I, w- I wouldn't say I'm a progressive, but I, I'm a progressive sympathizer. Um, <laughs> so in addition to your being, let's say, center left, um, I, but I don't sense that that's even what offends you about Mr. Trump. It's about um, his behavior and his manner and his style, uh, mm-hmm. more so even than his, than his politics, although his politics as well. Mm-hmm. Ladies, and, ladies right? and gentlemen, you'll notice the turn we've taken. I'm now being interviewed by Jake Tapper. Sorry. No, no. Sorry. Which is, this is like my, my dream. I'm being interviewed by Jake Tapper. This is awesome. It's Keep going. Job. Keep going. I do. Make it easy on me. Kind of like, I do kind of like, I do that. Uh, and to answer your question, there's a lot not to like about Mr. Trump. You know, he's an incredibly dangerous sociopath who presents America with his biggest existential threat in the nation's history. Other than that, I mean, you know, we could yeah, probably- but, but, but moving beyond that, right? I'm just sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, but you see, you just channeled like half of our country. Isn't that where we're at today? Like you could say he wants to destroy democracy, and half of the country would be like, "So what?" I don't think that they think that. I don't think it's half the country. It's probably about. You could say maybe it's half the Republican Party, but I don't think they think that he wants to destroy democracy. I think that they, because of the right wing media apparatus of uh, Fox and Newsmax and the rest, I think they have been fed the steady, sti- steady diet of lies for years and years and years, not just leading up to the election, that uh, everybody that is opposed to Trump is evil and lying and duplicitous and wants to remake the country into a communist nation and that Democrats are the ones trying to steal elections right. and the media is lying about it. So, I mean, I think that they have been, I don't think they think so what about democracy. I think they think the opposite. They think Donald Trump is trying to save our democracy, right. which obviously does not align or comport with the facts, but, but I don't think they're dismissive of, I just think like, I think it's worse than what you're saying. I, it's not that they, they're saying, oh, who cares about democracy? I think they actually believe this lie. Yeah, um, which is the which is the 
Well, when you look at the January 6th insurrection, your instinct is to first say, these people are crazy. They hate their country. They hate democracy. They want a dictator. But then I, there was a point where I, I really started to understand it all, to your point, in that they actually saw themselves as the ones that day who were defending and protecting democracy. And that's even scarier because on a longer term basis, how do you reverse that? How do you get that large group of our population to end up seeing reality? It's a really good question. Um, and I think that it starts with, um, well, that's a, you could, you could literally write a book just on that topic. Um, I think first of all, it starts with, um, mainstream news media needing to be as credible as possible so that when we assert facts, uh, about the election or whatever, um, they are more easily believed. And, and that means that um, some of the more histrionic coverage um, would need to change um, the stuff that is not based in reality. So that's one. Two, I think that it, it really calls on Republicans. It really calls on credible people in the Republican Party to um, to take a stand. And, you know, unfortunately, what we've seen is people doing that, like Liz Cheney or like Adam Kinzinger or like Mitt Romney and, you know, um, Cheney was defeated in her Republican primary. Kinzinger was redistricted out of the seat and decided not to challenge a, a MAGA guy. And Mitt Romney is is still a leader in the Senate, but, you know, has been um, mocked and belittled quite a bit. Um, so, and then it needs, honestly, it needs, um, it needs people like, it needs the National Review and Fox and, you know, people who know better to take a stand and, and really, um, do more to try to help correct this problem because it really is a big problem. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, I, I don't see much in the way of that kind of correction. I don't see much in the way of, I mean, there is some of it, you know, you see like the Congressman um, Gallagher from Wisconsin, um, you know, he has said he doesn't support Trump. He's not going to He's not going to support Trump in 2024, but he doesn't make a thing out of it uh, because he wants to focus on his issue, which is which is China and all that. Does he need to make a bigger thing out of it? I don't know. Um, is it enough for Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, to say he's not going to weigh in on the indictment of Donald Trump? Right. Is that is that OK? Because at least he's not attacking it. I don't know. This is stuff that. um it's, it's, you know, I, we see people trying to negotiate this very difficult and complicated terrain. It is very, very complicated terrain because you have now upwards of 10 or more people vying for the same nomination he is. He is the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and they have to navigate that terrain because they're yeah. running for president, yet they are paralyzed by this fear of the base and they're trying to straddle, like they're not going to take the base from him. So they're kind of waiting for something to happen to him. And then they'll just well, be set up. But like when you have the leadership coming out like they had this week, whether it's Marco Rubio or Grassley or McCarthy, they're still defending him. The fealty is still so astounding. They're furthering this notion that he is an innocent man. And that's where the danger is. But, but to give credit where credit is due... 
They're not all doing that. Chris Christie has been very aggressive uh, mm-hmm. and he's a, he's running for president and he's, you know, very specifically asserting um, in, in a credible way. Like he did not weigh in on the indictment until after he got to read it. Um, and he's been very strong and very harsh about what Trump's actions are. Um, Asa Hutchinson, who's running for president, has been as well. Uh, Nikki Haley has had her moments of 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 you know, trying to appease the base. But she's also said, look, my husband is about to be deployed as a member of the South Carolina National Guard and these kinds of national security secrets, you know, being kept in securely are the kind of things that could put his life in danger. So that's three. Mike Pence said something to the Wall Street Journal about um, the charges being very serious. He wants to hear what Trump's defense is, but those charges, he didn't belittle the charges at all. So that's four. Um, Francis Suarez is running the mayor of Miami. He didn't even vote for Trump either time. So I'm sure he's going to be critical, although I don't, I'm not sure he's weighed in. That's five. So five of the 13 have criticized Trump to a degree. That's not nothing. That's, that's something. No, I hear you on some of the other people in the Senate and the house, um, you know, or, you know, the Ron DeSantis, uh, approach to this. Although Ron DeSantis, it's interesting, you know, he said something where he was talking about the unequal application of law. And he's talking about, you know, how Hillary Clinton wasn't prosecuted. And basically his argument was that Trump and, and Hillary Clinton should have been treated the same way. And then he said something interesting. He said, because he's a, he's a veteran, I think, in, I think he's Army. Um, if I had done what Hillary Clinton did, I would have been court-martialed in a New York minute. It's an interesting comment hmm. because if he is now, he didn't make the connection and maybe I'm, maybe I'm doing too much by making the connection. But if you have, maybe this is the geometry student in 10th grade. If, if, if one is Hillary, you know, Hillary and Trump are equal, which they're not obviously in terms of the, the offense, but let, let's just say that for the sake of this theorem, Hillary and Trump are equal. If I did what Hillary did, I would have been court-martialed in the New York minute. That means, ergo, if I did what Trump did, I would have been court-martialed in the New York Now, he didn't say that, mm-hmm. but that was interesting. So I do think people are trying to figure this all out. And not to, not to bring this back to my book, which I have right here. All the demons are here. But um, one, of the theor- one of the things I tried to get into in the book, thank you so much, is um, uh, the book takes place in 1977. And there is a plot line. There are two, basically two plot lines, one with Ike and one with Lucy, their brother and sister. And they're the kids of the, of the, of the uh, characters from my first two books. And Ike, Ike's storyline is about demagogues, about, uh, in, it's Evil Knievel. Uh, and I had Evil Knievel running for president and Evil Knievel leading this mob barreling down the highways on their way to Washington, D.C. to demand justice. And I tried to get into the minds of who are these people following Abel Knievel? Why are they following mm-hmm. him? What are their grievances? What's behind that? Who, who is this demagogue, in this case, Abel Knievel, that they follow? And I tried to explore it this way, like from the inside uh, of not the January 6th mob, but a mob. That is, that is rabble rousing and, and, you know, that turns violent at the end of the book. What, what led them there? Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it is because these are people, right? I mean, these are people. Um, 
it wasn't like 100,000 Nazis that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. A lot of them were just like, I mean, I'm not, not including the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, but a lot of them were just like moms and dads. And they were people. Like right. you see who, like, I mean, right. I, I think like more, more than 800 of them have been prosecuted. And it's like local dentist or there was, sure. a, there was a comedian that was just uh, arrested, right? One of the guys behind Bob's Burgers or something like that. Did you see that? No. Oh, but I'm just like, I'm just saying like, so how, why, why were they there? Right. That's the big question. That's the big question is why, whether it's X percent of the American populace or X percent of the Republican party, what has compelled people to pledge this kind of fealty to a monster? And I think that's the thing that's going to be studied for the next hundreds and hundreds of years, because We've never seen anything like this before. The founding fathers never planned for this in the Constitution. That's one of the problems, one of the complexities of this situation is that we're not sure how to deal with it. The law doesn't necessarily deal with a lot of this stuff. It's starting to deal with some of it. There'll be a time when Trump is gone from the picture. But the disease that spread during the Trump era, that's going to linger. You know, So it's the Trump versus Trumpism argument. Like Trump is one thing, but Trumpism is going to outlive him. Oh, there's a lot in there. So, I mean, first of all, I guess the qu- one question I would have is how do you define Trumpism? Because there is a Trumpism that is policy oriented, right? I mean, Donald Trump as a disruptor. Um, and, you know, I'm so I'm a, you know, I'm a political reporter. I'm a journalist. And, I, you know, I don't come at this the same way you do um, as a as a passionate citizen. I, I come at this trying to understand it. Obviously, his election lies are lies. Obviously, the insurrection was horrific. I mean, there's certain empirical truths, but as a general analysis of looking at his presidency and as a whole, he's a disruptor. He got the Republican Party to change. He reshaped the Republican Party. Now, that means to a degree that he started with um, the idea that like, why couldn't, why is the U.S. so interventionist? Let's just, I'm just taking one example. Mm-hmm. Why is the U.S. so interventionist? Um, I don't think necessarily it's such a bad thing for him to get the Republican Party to, to rethink that approach. Um, I obviously have my personal opinions about Putin and Ukraine and all that, but um, that was a disruption. So, the, I mean, is that Trumpism in your definition? Another example is uh, the tariffs he put on China, which are, you know, more traditionally leftist, democratic, uh, protectionist kind of uh, policies. Joe Biden has kept them all in place. Joe, you know, I mean, Joe Biden has kept them all in place because the unions love them. The unions love those tariffs. Uh, And Joe Biden's a union guy, maybe above and beyond anything else that you could say about Joe Biden uh, politically. Uh, He's a union guy more than he is, you know, a civil rights activist or an LGBTQ activist or an ACLU. You know what I mean? Like, that's Mm -hmm. his thing. And so that's also a reshaping of the Republican Party. But I suspect when you talk about Trumpism, you're not talking about that. No. Right? You're talking about the cruelty and the lying. Yeah, right? I, Is that? I'm talking about a breakdown in reality, alternate facts, blatant racism, sidling up to enemies, alienating our allies, bans on this, bans on that, hate mongering, fear mongering, all of that that has literally served to rip apart the fabric of our country. You mentioned cruelty. Absolutely. How people have treated each other in the last eight years. That's how I define 
Trumpism. The genie has been let out of the bottle. And, you know, whether it's like you look at racism, you know, most racists were the kind that would go into the woods at night with their white hoods and robes and spew their racism and burn crosses. And then the next day kind of just trying to muzzle as much as they can because there were consequences to that. Today, you see what happened like in the Tennessee State House. Like it's just out in the open. We don't care. The black guys go and the white lady stays. Like it was the rock was lifted and all the insanity was let out into the open. And now that it's out into the open, can we put that stuff back in the bottle? So I'm reminded of that skit right after Trump was elected when Chappelle was hosting SNL. And Brilliant. It's the, and it's the, uh, their election watching skit. And it's Chappelle and I think Chris Rock. Yes. As two black guys watching these white people lose their shit as they watch uh, Trump win the election. And they are just standing there not surprised at all. Right. Mm -hmm. And I would say that a lot of this racism and demagoguery has been in American politics forever. Mm -hmm. And I, I hear what you're saying in terms of Trump um, saying, you know, saying to four congresswomen of color, three of whom are were born in the United States and mm -hmm. one of whom was a, a refugee, saying, go, you know, telling them to go back where they came from. Right is inherently racist, right? I mean, that's just like classic racist. Just like when he was, and I confronted him on this in the last interview he let me do, when he was saying that Judge Curie, although at the Trump University case, couldn't do his job because he's a Mexican, right. even though he's from Indiana. Yes, he was had Latino heritage, but and if you're saying he can't do his job because of his race, is that not the definition of racism, mm -hmm. which is what I tried to ask him. And he said, eventually I got there and he said, no, it's not. I don't think so, he said. So, but I, I think... So, yes, there's there has been a degree to which he's uh, opened the Pandora's box. But a lot of this stuff has been in American politics for a long, long time, not just on the Republican Party side, as you know, on the Democratic Party side as well. I'm not saying that it's this, it, I'm talking about just historically. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, having grown up in Philadelphia, Frank Rizzo was a mayor, mm -hmm. a notorious mayor who was a Democrat and a poli former police chief and, and a thug. And he loved and he loved, you know, there was an infamous photograph of him. Mm -hmm. um, having come from a dinner event to go arrest Black Panthers and he had a nightstick tucked in his cummerbund. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of this stuff has been in our sure. percolating in our, and, and Frank Rizzo was kind of like a precursor to Trump, to that kind of, mm -hmm. you know, Donnie from Queens, you're on the air, kind of just like saying what he thinks. Right. Uh, and a lot of it being offensive. Um, so I agree with you that, that some of that has, he's, he's like made it more acceptable to say things like that. Mm -hmm. But that has always been in the American psyche to a degree, one way or the other, I think. And one of the things like in in um, in the book, what I have Evil Knievel doing, like making, you know, running for president and, and talking about the things that are animating him, some of it is fictitious stuff. I mean, first of all, the whole, obviously his whole campaign is fictitious, but some of it is fictitious stuff in terms of like, um, you know, opening uh, the files on area, uh, 49 or whatever, it's called. Mm -hmm. I forget what it is, the, the, the UFOs. And then, but then, but a lot of it is also just like stuff that's part of our collective psyche. Like why are the Arabs treating us badly when it comes to oil? Or I don't like all these foreigners coming in and taking our jobs mm -hmm. and, and that sort of thing. And the, the fact is uh, the, the, the appeal that Trump has to a lot of his supporters, some of it's based in you know, more basic instincts and impulses. A lot of it's based in 
just uh, uh, people love him, his celebrity. A lot of it's also based in the feeling that like people in politics, people in the media don't care about some problems in this country that have been going on for a long time. No, I'm not saying that Donald Trump is the answer to those problems, but you and I are old enough to remember, um, you know, a lot of these problems being discussed in the late 80s and early 90s, and it kind of helped Bill Clinton get elected, which mm -hmm. is the idea of corporate America sending jobs overseas. NAFTA got blamed for a lot of that, but really most favored nation status for China was a really big part, and nobody was looking out for the working men and women of, I'm from Pennsylvania. So like there are whole cities that, you know, basically shut down. They lost their, their manufacturing base mm -hmm. because all of a sudden there were incentives for corporations to send jobs overseas. Now I'm not saying Donald Trump is the answer to those problems, but those are real problems. Sure. But, but you and, know what, you mentioned Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton yeah. famously said, I feel your pain. Donald right. Trump's entire life and campaign uh, is, can you feel my pain? <laughs> and that's such right. a huge difference, yet people still sit there and respond to that. They don't care about, he never tells them what he's going to do for them. It's all about him. It's about him, but they see him as, again, I put him in the awkward position of trying to explain something that I don't particularly, you know, I'm not supportive of this. Right. this but I, th I think the idea that they see him as a vessel for, how they feel. They mm -hmm. see the political establishment and the news media and Hollywood and whatever looking down on him right. disdainfully at him, not being fair to him. And they say, well, that's how I feel too. I'm not yeah. saying you're right, but that I think is part of it. And so look, in the book, there's um the, there's a there's a a subplot that has to do with Agent Orange. Right. This is in 1977. Mm -hmm. And so, look, this was a real this was a real scandal, right? I mean, a defoliant that American soldiers and service members dropped in Vietnam to destroy the forest so the Viet Cong couldn't hide, gave service members and Vietnamese people horrible forms of cancer. But it took years before the U.S. government admitted it and years before they agreed to pay for it. And there are still people still to this day that are fighting with the VA about whether or not their cancer was caused by Agent right. Orange. That is a, a subplot I have in there because like that's a legitimate thing that people were upset about. Mm -hmm. And the government was pretending in 1977 that it was all nonsense. And that's one of the reasons one of the reasons I had that in there was because A, it takes place in 77. B, there's this also this quackery, this thing called Laetrile, where mm -hmm. people were trying to like say, this is a natural cancer solver. It, right. will, it will cure your cancer. It was, it was all bullshit. That was also happening in 77. It was like quackery, like we saw kind of like during COVID. Right. And, but it was a legitimate problem and nobody was listening to them. Right. And then in the book, Evil Knievel comes along and he's listening to them. Right. He's listening to them. And that doesn't mean he's going to do anything about it or he's going to solve it, but he's not wrong about everything. And again, I'm not trying to justify an insurrection or racism or whatever, but I just think a lot of people, you talked about the people who overlook the democracy thing. I think there are a lot of people that overlook uh, Trump's behavior that they don't 
care for the, you know, the, the comments he makes that are that are racist or offensive or or just rude or whatever. Like, you know, when he defamed Eugene Carroll at the Trump Town Hall that we had, like, and now she's added that to the complaint and the judge is letting her. Not a bright move. Like, I think there are a lot of people who don't care for that or they're willing to overlook it or it doesn't bother them because they think he is at least going to fight for me. And again, I'm not saying they're right. No, I think what you're doing is smart and it's true to a certain degree. Like everyone talks about his base as if it's a monolithic, you know, just everybody feels exactly the same. And it's not that way. There, There are most definitely people in his base who are like, yeah, I don't like the economy. I don't like this or I don't like that or the Agent Orange equivalent, whatever that is today. I just think most of his base just was given license to be their worst selves, to feed their worst beliefs. And because you can't blame the economy. I mean, the economy is humming. I mean, it is humming. It's one of the best economies we've had in a long time. Uh, when it comes to employment, yes. And when it comes even to inflation growth, yes. is now half of what it was. Like, it's all working. No matter how you measure the economy, each metric is working and for the most part working really well. But the phenomenon to me about him is that he's tapped into something that other politicians would never have dared to go to a place. Well, I think one of the things about him also is that, like, he follows his base. Right. He he doesn't lead them as much as he figures out what they think. And he's kind of, I wouldn't say afraid of his base, but he doesn't want to. I mean, look, he could have, he could have achieved any number of um, legislative triumphs in his, in his presidency that he didn't. Right. Um, he could have achieved immigration reform. He could have achieved gun reform. He could have achieved uh, some sort of compromise when it came to uh, infrastructure. But he didn't because he was afraid that he would piss off his base. Right. Um, right now, he is... Leading this, you know, we're not leading. He's he's joining the anti-trans charge, right? Uh, that conservatives in his party are to have taken up, and by all indications, um, that's not what he really, truly, actually thinks. No. I mean he he has said very positive things about trans women in the past. Remember, he made a when they were going after the gay vote in 2016, and Caitlyn Jenner. Um, you know, was a, was a surrogate for the campaign. Uh, Trump, like, you know, he made, they made a big show out right. of Caitlyn Jenner right. being able to use the woman's bathroom at, at Trump Tower or something along those lines. But now the base is at a different place and now right. he's taken up the charge. So he feeds his base. He knows how to do that yeah. really well to, to suit his own purposes. That's his evil genius. He understands who his audience is. And he so tries never to the let other, them down. And he often doesn't let them down. The other part of this that, that we're that we haven't really d- dived into, and it all it also is in um, my novel, has to do with the conservative media. So Ike is with Evil Knievel, and that that's an exploration of that time and Evil Knievel, and also but also mobs and demagoguery. Lucy, his sister, is twenty two, and she just she joins the staff of a new tabloid in Washington D.C. called the the Washington Sentinel, started by this British. Uh, media magnate and who is basically a stand-in for Rupert Murdoch. Right. And again, I tried to explore how that happens. How does a tabloid 
become a tabloid? Like what, what are they going for? Not in a, you know, Mr. Burns, <laughs> like evil way, but like right. what actually would a media magnate do to try to push the idea that this is a good idea mm -hmm. to have a, a newspaper that is more, shall we say, accessible to the common man or woman. And that ends up following and feeding various tropes that could be um, combustible, whether it's racism or anti-immigration stuff. And that's a big part of this too, because as, as we talked about, there is a sizable chunk of the country being told the election was stolen, being told, you know, the Joe Biden who look, you know, he's 80 years old. Obviously he is not who he was when he was 40 years old. And like anyone who pretends he was like, isn't paying attention, but the story that they are being told about Joe Biden and his cognition is wildly off um, the reality. You know, they, you really, they, I mean, Fox really sells its viewers this weekend at Bernie's thing, that he's not even in charge, that he's not even, and look, he's 80. I'm not going to pretend that, that there isn't, there aren't things to discuss there about of like, you know, is he as sharp as he was five years ago even? Of course, these conversations should take place. They should take place with Trump too, right. who's 77, I think. But, but that said, they are being fed lies. Right. They are being fed like these crazy theories, not by all the shows on right. Fox, but by enough of them. Yeah. I mean, they, one of the shows two days ago had a Chiron, you know, the titles yep. at the bottom, that, say, that described Joe Biden as a wannabe dictator, like as if that was a news assertion, right. wannabe dictator, Something something like wannabe dictator tries to jail a political riot. Right. Well, yeah. And that should be an indication of where things remain and how long it might take us to get away from there. But let's shift to, to the book in the writing career. The book is All the Demons Are Here. It's your third in a series about Charlie Martyr and the Martyr family. It's a great read. It clearly, you. Uh, you know, obviously you lived through the last several years of the Trump era. And so there's a lot of parallels. You mentioned the Murdoch family. I'm a big Succession fan, so there's a lot of, um, yeah. the, you know, the, the Roy family in there. And so when you were experiencing the same stuff as an American that we were during that period, did a bell go off in your head and say, wow, this would make an awesome novel? Well, so all of the books, all the novels I've written, I try to be writing about what's going on today through the lens of the first book takes place in the 50s, so that's mm -hmm. about... Um, the McCarthy era and conspiracies and government conspiracies. And the second book takes place in the sixties. It's about the Rat Pack. And that's also a look at, that was really more a look at Hollywood and, 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 um, and sexism and, you know, there's stuff in there about Jeffrey Epstein, mm -hmm. except, you know, not about Jeffrey Epstein. So it was about other resonant, uh, relevant occurrences today, except taking place in 62, this one, 77, um, the Rupert Murdoch, well, first of all, I should say, um, I was trying to figure out what to do for the next book. One journalist, a woman journalist who's a little older than me, I was going to skip over the 70s. And she said, no, 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 you got to do the 70s. It's a great era. And like, I lived through it. I didn't, I didn't like it very much. It did, That's because you were fun. in Philly. If you were in New York, it would have been a different no, no, experience. No. But... It's because I was a kid. It's because I was a kid, although I did like it. But like, I thought it was just like a lame decade, but it turns out it was just an insane decade. I mean, just wild with the New York City blackout and the summer of Sam and Studio 54. Mm -hmm. And all this stuff happened, by the way, in 1977. Mm -hmm. um, 
and the, the death of Elvis and, you know, all this stuff. And so she was right. And then I was talking to Kara Swisher for her podcast for the second book. And she said, I don't know if she said it on air or after we were done. And she said, I should look into Rupert Murdoch as a character in my next book, if it was going to mm. be. And, um, but she was right. I read some books on Murdoch and what he did to American journalism and journalism worldwide in terms of, um, pushing tabloid journalism. Um, he did it. He started in San Antonio in the United States. And one of the first things he did, and Andy, you'll remember this. You remember how terrified we all were of killer bees for like a decade. Mm -hmm. We were like all the world was terrified of killer bees. It was based in some reality, but it was really nothing to be worried about. And that was Murdoch. He did that in the San Antonio newspapers. And he created that fear of killer bees. Like they're coming, they're working their way up South America. They're mm -hmm. going to get to the United States. They're going to kill us all. Mm -hmm. And um, once I realized that, I was like, oh my God, this guy is, he's responsible for fear and outrage as basically the, the, the two meals on the journalistic plate that people are fed, fear and outrage, fear and outrage. And he is not, he doesn't hide that. He's, that is his method. And so I just took a lot of stuff that he thinks and feels and has said on the record. And I, uh, and I created a different character, Max Lyon and the Lyon family um, to talk about that and to talk about what he has done to journalism and obviously fox is a perfect example and the new york post is a perfect example and as somebody who gets attacked by both of these organizations regularly 95 percent of the time completely unfairly oh i'll allow that maybe every now and then they they hit one that's on target but most of the time just wildly inaccurate stuff um and like, whatever, I'm not complaining about it. That's, you know, as Hyman Roth said, this is the business we've chosen. Right. But it's just, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Right. And like, that is all they do. Fear and outrage, fear and outrage. And it's not good for the Republic at all. You write, you know, historical fiction, which is a very specific way of writing, which seems like a perfect marriage of all of your own personal interests and the work you've done in your career. And it makes it fun because you're in the head of reality, but then you're also losing yourself in these fictional characters. Um, yeah. and, it's uh, fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I would imagine it's a, it's a lot of fun. When I wrote The Hellfire Club, um, which takes place in 1954, I was very reluctant to play with historical figures uh, in the service of the book. I, 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 it made me very uncomfortable. But then... I got more comfortable and more comfortable. Uh, and then in the second draft, I would take out a fictitious character and just have Roy Cohn do what, you know, and uh, the, the kind of rule I, I just kept to was it needs to be in character. It needs to be believable. Like, I'm not going to have Roy Cohn, like, you know, eat a baby, you know what I mean? Or order a hit, but you know, would he pressure Both of which he probably has done. In his well, life. I don't know. I mean, like I lived the life, but, but, um, but yeah, I mean, is this something the person would do? Um, and so that, that I got more comfortable with it. And then for the devil may dance, Frank Sinatra is a major character. Mm -hmm. And again, I tried to just hew to things he said and did and how would he actually behave, you know, while also, you know, allowing myself some flights of fiction. And then 
for this one, Evil Knievel is a major character. And again, wanting to stick to things he actually said and did while also like having him lead this wild quest to run for president in 1977, um, which obviously he didn't do, but I wanted to make it believable uh, and use things from mm -hmm. his actual life to feed it. Like, for instance, he had a movie that came out. I think it was called Viva Knievel. And it was a huge flop. And um, and 77 was a really bad year for Evil Knievel. Um, so the idea that he would be trying, grasping at straws and trying to do something wild, like he literally jumped the shark. He literally, before Farns did it, he, 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 in January 1977, Evil Knievel had a CBS special where he was going to jump over a, a tank of sharks. This was a few years after the movie Jaws came out and everybody was trying to do shark stuff. And then during rehearsals, he hurt himself. And so he couldn't, um, he couldn't do the actual special. So that was a huge failure. And then the movie was a huge flop. And I just, you know, I just put Ike in there and had him playing around with all these actual occurrences from Evil Knievel's life. And it was, uh, and it was fun. And then at the end of 1977, not to do any spoiler alerts, but Evil Knievel actually literally ends up in jail. Um, and this is really kind of like the end of his, the, the big part of his career. And that really happened too. Well, that was, that's one of the fun things for me about reading the book uh, from a historical fiction standpoint is like, as I was reading, I'd be like, oh, did, did he really go out to LA and do that? And I would stop and then I'd go online and I'd be like, oh, shit, he did go out there. What a... Well, you know, I, and I have, by the way, and I did this, I do this for all my hysterical novels in the back, I have a notes and sources. Right. So people in the acknowledgement section, so people can go back and, you know, see like, well, did, did this really happen? Did that really happen? And like, just where everything came from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Viva Knievel. This is chapter three. Viva, Viva Knievel was a real film from the June 2nd, 1977 review in Daily Variety. In the most daring feat of his career, Evil Knievel leaps over a mountain of blazing cliches and a cavernous plot, somehow landing upright to the predictable cheers of his legions of fans. So, like, I tried to play with real things, but have them, obviously, in mm -hmm. this wild... But, and I think to, to the conversation we were having earlier, what I also really enjoyed the most was how the book does, it on some level, try to explain from a psychological standpoint, a sociological standpoint, the characters in the book as relating to the characters in our life today, the people yeah. in politics, the people in media. Because it was very clear to me that you're trying to explain where the hell we've been for the last eight or nine years. And yeah. I think you do that in a really good way in these fictional characters. But when you're reading the book, you're like, oh, that's, wow, that seems familiar. Right. And it's kind of fun because we get to experience this educational process through the lens of the Lion family or the Martyr family, and it's fictional, so we can get lost in the fiction of it. Thank you. So, so um, one of the things, uh, so motorcycles are a big part of the book, and I know nothing about motorcycles. I have a motorcycle, but I know you nothing do. about yeah, and I know nothing about motorcycles, which is why so it's dead. It's lying dead in my garage. So I hired a motorcycle writer mm -hmm. to help me with the motorcycle right. parts of the book because I wanted people who know about motorcycles to read this and enjoy it and not spend well, He did time. a good job or you, both of you did a good job because you're well he marked it but but because I don't I you know it nothing drives me crazy more than when I watch a um uh, like plot about journalism a, a book or a movie or a tv show about journalism or politics and they just like don't even know remotely what they're talking about 
And I'm like, I can't enjoy this. So I didn't want any motorcyclists out there to have that same experience. So I hired Mark Gardner to, to help me with that. Um, he's credited in the, in the acknowledgements, um, you know, just to make sure that like everything, I mean, he didn't, he didn't write the book, but like he, he made sure the motorcycle parts were accurate. No, your knowledge, that how you write about motorcycles, the different types of bikes and how they start. Yeah, you think, <laughs> think I knew anything. I don't. So pretty much you just hired that. people to tell you everything about this book, right? Well, about motorcycles, about, because I, because I like, look, I want Ike to, because motorcycles are a big part of the plot. He's right. working for Evil Knievel. A big part um, of the plot. Yeah. I mean, like he, there are, without giving any spoilers, there's a big scene in a war and yep. it's a motorcycle relevant. Mm -hmm. There's a big scene towards the end of the book where yep. motorcycles relevant. Yep. Uh, he flees Nazis in, in Montana on a back on a motorcycle. So, I mean, like they're a big part of the book and I, I want it. So Mark checked it, fixed it, made everything right. But what was interesting was he then sent me uh, an, an article he had written before that I did not know about in which he had compared Evil Knievel to Donald Trump. He had, he had made that observation, which I, you know, independently, it's not that unique an observation. I'm sure like people have compared Donald Trump to all sorts of characters from history, but there is a degree of here's a guy who is a real showman really knows how to like evil Knievel was not a great talented motorcyclist compared to other people right. like for instance his, his late son robbie was a much more gifted motorcyclist i'm told mm -hmm. but evil Knievel was braver bolder and had a real sense of showmanship uh that made him this huge celebrity and there is a degree to which donald trump is the same he is a uniquely American character who is able to understand and exploit what people want uh, in, a, in a way that led him to the White House. Mm -hmm. uh, before that, you know, to a huge success on The Apprentice, um, despite not being uh, as gifted a real estate developer or businessman as many other of his contemporaries, not to take away from his his talents. Obviously, he has some, but but. He, he, because of his showmanship, because mm -hmm. of his ability. So that parallel was sitting right there. And that's, and it was fun that, that Mark got there before I did. Um, although I obviously wrote a novel about it. He wrote an essay. When you were a little kid, did, you know, and people would say, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And some kids say, yeah, fireman, astronaut, whatever. Was your answer journalist? Was your answer writer? Was No, I wanted to be the $6 million man. Who didn't? I want us just to be married I, I to, to uh, Wonder Woman, or wasn't he married to Wonder Woman? Um, no, he, was to, he was married to Farrah Fawcett. Oh, right, right, right. Even better, he married to one of Charlie's Angels. No, I want. I, I, I look I, when I'm, I'm talking about when I was like six or seven, and I because the, the very first answer, and I wrote about this in some sort of time capsule that my grade school uncovered and sent me a copy of. But, you know, I, and I, I guess looking back on it, what I wanted to do was I figured that TV shows went on forever because I was six or seven and I had no idea what a can that a TV show would end. And I figured that like, by the time I was in my twenties, it would be time for Lee majors to retire. And I could, I could be the $6 million man. That would be a good gig. But I will also say I was off. I did a new, I lived in a little courtyard with like five homes in Philadelphia and I did a newspaper uh, when I was around that age too, um, about just like what was going on in the courtyard. Um, and we had a contest to name it. 
and it was called JT's If You Please. That's what our neighbor came up with. And Catchy. Whatever. So I did. So journalism obviously was there, mm-hmm. and I'm named after my dad's great uncle, who was this like legendary uh, managing editor at the Chicago Sun Times, who helped create the uh, Freedom of Information Act when he was at Medill mm-hmm. in Northwestern. So I guess it was always going to be. Uh, and kind of in the blood, but it took me a little while to figure it out. And writing, of course, goes hand in hand with journalism, but not creative writing. And look, the truth is, in life, most people don't excel at one thing, and you've excelled now at two things. When was the moment where you were comfortable enough in your career as a journalist that you said, okay, I can now take a step back and do this kind of thing all over again and put myself out there, and they're going to judge me as Jake Tapper, the writer, not Jake Tapper, yeah. the journalist. And I want to be a writer. I want to be a fiction writer. It's a really interesting question because I wanted to do, at a com- I did a comic strip in college for this, for this school paper. I didn't do journalism in college. I did a comic strip. And I wanted to be a cartoonist. I wanted to like do, I wanted to be the next Doonesbury. And that didn't work out. But in my 20s, I wrote a novel and I was just try- trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And then I ended up in journalism um, in my twenties, and and then I and then I and then I didn't. I thought about fiction, but I never really tried it. And then um, I'd, been, I'd been kicking around an idea for a novel for like more than a decade uh, about Washington, but I, about the city of Washington and about what I observed. But I didn't know how to get there. I tried one that took place in contemporary days. And then I tried one that took place in the colonial era. And then I settled on the McCarthy era um, after uh, Trump started, after Trump's rise. He did see the parallels mm-hmm. um, in a very gifted uh, person who disrupted and was in decent in ways. I saw, the, I saw a lot of parallels with, with Joe McCarthy. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I guess I don't know why it took so long, but ultimately I had written a nonfiction book. I'd written a book about Afghanistan mm-hmm. in 2012. And that was such a passion project. I didn't, I couldn't think of another one, another project I cared as much about to follow up with. And then I just, and then, and then I just went back to, my, the idea of, of writing a novel. And I guess I just took a chance. And Was it terrifying? I mean, you, this was like five, six years ago that it was published, obviously, maybe a the year. first one, yeah, 2018, I think. Yeah. yeah. At that point, obviously, you're Jake Tepper. You're one of the top news guys in the country. And now you're just going to be a rookie writer. Did that confidence that you take with you every day when you go on the air, were you in this vulnerable place all of a sudden where... Yeah. Oh my God! Are they? Uh, is this thing just going to be trashed? Am I going to have a yep. second book, a third, bo- a third novel? Like that must have been a scary place to be when you're like excelling so much in one vocation and then taking a totally different leap to something else. It puts you back in a place of being vulnerable and scared. I imagine. Totally, a hundred percent. And I'm still there, even though you know both novels, both previous novels were bestsellers, mm-hmm. and the second one got really good reviews. The first one got middling reviews. Some of the reviews were really good. Some of them were not. Uh, the second one got much more positive reviews. I, it, one of the things that's, um, that's weird is that 
I mean, obviously I got this opportunity that somebody would like even read the book to consider publishing it because of whatever reputation I have as a journalist. Um, but that's, but that's the first book. That's not the second book. Right. You know? And, um, and, and whatever people like people drag their political views of me or CNN or whatever into not everybody, but, but some people do, uh, to, to trash the book, uh, you know, like Fox or the Federalist or whatever, like they all, and I, and I have no doubt that they'll trash this one too. Mm -hmm. And that's weird because it's like, I mean, just judge it as a piece of writing. And maybe it's where we are. It's where we are in this country. There is no objectivity. But as you know, I mean, Charlie Martyr is a Republican, right? Charlie Martyr is a Republican congressman in the, in this third book. He's a senator, but he's for civil he's rights. A, you know, well, he's a New York Republican. He's an Eisenhower Republican. Right. He's a Rockefeller Republican. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, like, but he's that kind of Republican, and they exist. There are a bunch of New York Republicans. They won. They had a they had a good election last November. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you know, I mean, like, I think it's funny because like. Tell me any other thriller uh, character hero that is a Republican congressman. I mean, like, I don't, I don't know that it's ever been done before. But Charlie is a, you know, he's a Republican. He's, right. a, he's a Republican. He's a World War II hero. He's yep. a, he's a, he stands for, you know, fiscal conservatism. And, and uh, he's not a fan of the Kennedys. He's not a fan of Democrats. And he's the hero of the book. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, not just the first book, but the second book, too. And then the third book. His kids are also, you know, kind of right leaning. I mean, Ike is a Marine, uh, and Lucy goes to work for a conservative media man. Right, and these are these are not, you know, these aren't wild haired liberals. I mean, yeah. these are conservative characters, or at least center right. And uh, so it's funny to me because, I mean, I feel like I'm writing about good Republicans. <laughs> Well, and, they're, uh, they're, and, uh, you know, and coming from this guy, it's this is going to sound weird, but there are some good Republicans. Of course. Uh, yeah. the, the book is a great read. I would assume the series continues. Well, we'll see how this one does. I did. I did sign a contract to write a fourth mm -hmm. and I'm about halfway through and it takes place in the 80s. And uh, I'm Another excited about it. Yeah. Well, th but this one is actually more about it takes the fourth one takes place on a boat, on a cruise to France uh, to commemorate the 40th anniversary of D-Day. Um, and, um, and let me guess, and, um, Ike, Ike rescues the Iranian hostages. The, the, the boat. Or was no. that the seventies? Was that the seventies? The... the Iranian hostages uh, were 79, 79, 80. Yeah, they were ultimately freed in early 81, right, right. after Carter Reagan. left off. Right, right. Um, no, but this is 84 and it's, uh, it's based, it's really more about World War II than it is about the eighties. Um, cause it's supposed to come out next year and that will be the, think 70th anniversary or 80th anniversary mm -hmm. of D-Day. So um, anyway, but it's on, the, it's, so it's a cruise and there's all these World War II heroes on this cruise, on the special cruise. And on the first day, one of the generals that helped run World War II vanishes. Mm -hmm. And that's, and so it's, it, that's what happened. No, good luck with that. Well, my last question, which is a very important one, we talked about Taylor, Taylor Swift. Music mm -hmm. is a good window into people's souls. Yeah. Give me your top five musical artists of all time. Oh, of all time? All time. Well, I'm a huge, I'm a huge Dave Matthews fan. Mm -hmm. Huge. That's um, one. So that's one. Um, I mean, I can't have a genre as one. I mean, I can't like old school rap. As, as, or it has to be a specific person. 
Okay, but you know, name can name somebody. Um, Snoop. All right. Okay. Dave Matthews, Elvis Presley okay. was huge in my in my mm-hmm. youth, and Elvis Presley's death is huge in this book. Mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra was a huge part of my youth and a huge part of the second book. So that's three. Mm. I should just look at my phone and try to figure out what I listened to. No Beatles. The Beatles would be four. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the Stones would be five. And that's very that's very male. It's a very male list. All right. Well, we'll I'm be- going to see um, Darius Rucker next week, and I'm really excited about that. Hootie. Have you heard any of his stuff? I can't say that I have. I'm not a... I was an okay Hootie fan, I, I but I, I would imagine I, his solo stuff is probably better than the Hootie stuff. It's really good, and it's... I don't know if you like country. I'll tell you the album to download and just... Or just Spotify it, but like Southern Style mm-hmm. is, a, is a really good album. Uh, or Charleston, South Carolina is a really good album. And mm-hmm. it just... I would just recommend. I'll check, check it out. out. It's one of the reasons I ask yeah. that question is that I go home and I start listening to new music. Yeah. Jake, this has been a lot of fun. I wish we had more Thanks time. Uh, hopefully, they'll let you come back and do, do this again. Good luck with the book. It's called All the Demons Are Here, July 11th. It is available right now for pre order. Thanks again for coming in. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate it. Take care. That's episode 85. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446, email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, or tweet to me at Andy Osprey. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. And if you do like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. Once again, I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer Jen Hamoud, Richard Langale for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wynn and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Jake Tapper. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.